Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Um, it's what I'm going to be speaking on this morning in our first sort of session together this afternoon. Something slightly different. So if you hang around, you'll get uh, two bites of this. But if if not, you can probably catch up with it on on podcast. But I absolutely believe that God is calling His people to a life of extravagance. And extravagance is just a gorgeous word, isn't it? Extravagance. It sounds like what it means. Uh, and and I believe that Jesus wants to call me and you to a world of extravagance, uh, to a world that's bigger than the world we're currently in. And I don't mean by that simply, uh, you know, a a sort of a, 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 I want more sort of a world, but God wants more for you sort of a world. Amen? So often we think about extravagance as, as, as about what I can get from God. Actually, actually, I think the world of extravagance is about how the Lord can teach us about what He wants to do for us, but also what we in turn can do for Him. Uh, and this, this great sense of he wants to lead us into a life that's bigger than even anything we could have imagined or thought about. And I want to take the reading from Luke chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read this whole beautiful story together. Luke chapter 7, and it's verse 36. Some of you may know the story. Some of you may be hearing the story for the very first time. If you have a Bible or you've got a copy of the Bible on your smartphone or your pod, then please follow it with me. There's something about hearing the Bible and reading the Bible together that's really spectacular. And so if you've got a copy somewhere, grab it. If you're a guest, don't worry about it. I'll read the story for you. Verse 36, Luke chapter 7, and it says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. That was Simon's big mistake. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Now, a denarius was a day's wages, so that'll give you an idea of the the money involved. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, 
has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is one of the most um, intimate stories in the life of Jesus as far as the Gospels are concerned. The book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record for us the earthly ministry and life of Jesus. And if you were to examine all the encounters that Jesus has with people, this is by far one of the most dynamically intimate moments. But Dr. Luke stresses for us that this is also one of the purest moments that Jesus experiences while in his earthly ministry. On the surface, this event looks slightly sensuous. In fact, that's some of the underlying criticism and accusation being made of the woman, that she's doing things that are culturally insensitive and way over the boundary as far as behavior of that day is concerned. And even though it looks a little bit sensuous, the, uh, Dr. Luke tells us this is one of the most spiritual moments in the ministry of Jesus. It looks a bit reckless. It looks a bit wild. It looks a little bit over the top. And yet we find out by the end of the story that this is one of the most dynamic and outstanding moments of pure worship contained in the Gospels. Now, it sounds a little bit similar to another story. There's a story contained in Matthew, in Mark, and in John's Gospel, uh, a very similar story where a woman called Mary anoints Jesus for burial. Now, they look really similar, but they're different. And it's important that we understand that they are different because Dr. Luke is trying to say something to me and you through this story that's not being said in the other story. Whenever you read the Gospels and you come across a unique story that that Gospel writer includes, it's because they're trying to get your attention on something and they want you to pause and think about the message that's at hand. They're very similar, but they're different. And in this story, a unique story to Luke's Gospel, Luke is giving us a tremendous insight into the power of extravagance at this moment. This is a woman who is so captivated by Jesus that she literally, literally lavishes herself on him. She washes his feet with her tears, an act of extravagant service when, she, when Jesus' feet had been left dirty. She then uh, unbinds her lovely long hair and she wipes his feet, uh, towels them dry with her hair, uh, an act, if you like, of an extravagant statement that this woman has in this context. Then, if that's not bad enough, she kisses his feet, which would have been extremely controversial, in perhaps uh, an action of extravagant uh, surrender 
when you dig into that, it's a, it's a, it's a moment of profound worship. And then, and then she gives her alabaster jar in an act of extravagant sacrifice. And, and all of this is captivated for us uh, by Dr. Luke in the context of our, of our story. Okay, great. In, in the context of our story. And it's really, really important that, that we go with Dr. Luke and try to understand what is going on here. And though we're living in the 21st century and she lived in the 1st century, Dr. Luke is not asking us to copy what she did. So none of us are going to be asked to come out the front and, you know, cry over my feet and do weird stuff. All right, all right. So, so clearly there's a cultural context to this moment that we're not expected to repeat. We're not expected to copy her, but, and it's a massive but, we are called to catch who she is, what she's doing, and why she is doing that. Because that stuff translates to the 21st century. So how we worship and serve and love Jesus will look different to how she did it back then. But, but the carryover principles of who we're doing it for, why we're doing it, the drivers to those issues are exactly the same. So this story looks a little bit foreign to me and you in our 21st century sophisticated world. But once we get past the cultural markers and we get into the heart of this story, what we've got is an amazing expression of extravagance that was not only appreciated by Jesus then, but he's still looking for today. He's looking for extravagant people, people who will worship him with all of their hearts. And by worship, I don't just mean what we've just done here. By worship, when the Bible talks of worship, it talks of a lifestyle of obedience and surrender. It talks of putting God at the center of absolutely everything. Not just for 40 minutes when we're being led by a fantastic band, but everything, every moment of every day, we're putting him at the center. We're placing him at the center of our universe. That's worship. And he wants us to be as, as extravagant for him here uh, as, as out there. He wants me to live extravagantly in my workplace. He wants me to live extravagantly for him in my college or my university or my school. He wants me to be extravagant for him in my neighborhood as well as here when we're together as a fantastic Christian community. And what's really striking, one of the most extravagant acts of worship didn't happen in church. It's not happening in a synagogue. It's not in the temple. It's not in a religious context. It's in a non-religious context, though in the house of a very religious man. Everything that's happening here has no right to happen where it happens. And yet she makes it happen. She turns, she turns an ordinary place into a holy place. Why? Because her eyes are fixed and centered on Jesus. Now, just to help us, I'm going to give you a little bit of cultural background here, and then we're going to get to the meat of this. Is that okay? Because this will really help. There's a little clue in the story. It says that while they were reclining at dinner, I don't know if you picked that up, but me and you reading this from the 21st century, we hear dinner, and we automatically think of a dinner table, maybe. Uh, certainly, that's what we have at home. We have a dining room with a dining room table. We were all gathered around that table last night and had a wonderful time together. So when you and I are reading this from the 21st century, the danger is we're thinking that Jesus is sitting at a table 
But actually, he's not. And that's what makes the story even more amazing. In fact, what you've got here is uh, Jesus. If you like, that center block, that center uh, rectangle is the table. And then you would have couches positioned around the table in a sort of a U-shape. So what you've got is a low table, maybe no more than two foot high. And then off the table, you've got little couches. Uh, and, and in fact, they were sort of little mini beds. And so the idea would be, you would lean on your left arm, and you would reach over to the table with your right hand, and you would eat and chat all night. Actually, I've tried this. It's a really cool way of eating more food. Um, you get more in if you lie down. It's a really great idea, and I would encourage you. Um, and, so, and so, in a setting like that, these guys are all reclining at the table. So, that's the table in the center, and then we've got this sort of arrangement. Now, if my little clicker works, there we are. Now, here, that's where Simon would be. As the host, he would be at, if you like, as we're looking at it, the top left-hand side of the gathering. So, uh, the idea from there is that Simon, leaning on his left arm, can see everything that's happening. He can see every guest. He's got his eye on everyone, sort of thing. Okay, Jesus, as the chief guest, would be, up, uh, would be directly opposite Simon, okay? So, so, we've got this idea that Simon's watching everyone, and Jesus, of course, reclining here, would be leaning on his left arm. He would have his back, as it were, to some of the guests, but he would be facing Simon. Because that's the reason Jesus is there. Jesus is there not to have dinner. Jesus is dinner. Okay, so the idea is that the Pharisees have invited Jesus so that they can essentially rip his theology apart and sort him out. This young, this young upstart of a Galilean who's, who's uh, causing all this stirring stuff going on, they want to sort him out. And that's why he's at Simon's house. So he's sort of trapped here in the context of this. When the woman appears in our story, she positions herself behind Jesus. Remember what the text says, she stood behind him and then she went to work at his feet. So this makes perfect sense now. The woman is behind Jesus. Now you can see from this what's going on in that Simon from his vantage point can see the woman. That's why it's quite funny in the story when Jesus says, do you see this woman? Poor old Simon's freaking out. Has he seen too much of her? He wants rid of her. Okay, so Simon can see everything. Lovely little moment there. But, but, but actually, the whole time in this story, Jesus has his back to the woman. When she washes his feet with her tears, he's got his back to her. He's probably still, you know, reaching over, eating the olives. These olives are gorgeous. Where did you get them? Sainsbury's or or Morrison's? These are great. And Jesus is just carrying on doing his thing. Simon's going apoplectic at this stage. He's he's freaking out. If this man were a prophet, that's all going on in his brain. Jesus is just tucking in into the olives and the woman's doing her thing at his feet. That's all going on together. And she is washing his feet with her tears and he's got his back to her. She unbinds her hair, a controversial uh, moment that could get a married woman divorced in certain religious circles in a first century Jewish world. And she towels his feet with her hair and he still got his back to her. She then kisses his feet. My goodness gracious. I mean, even in the, the liberal 21st century. If, if, you know, if a woman came out the front and started kissing my, I mean, we, we go, hey, easy, easy, take it easy. Right? Wow, that's a bit goodness. 
And Jesus is, okay, I'll have some more olives. This is, you know, this pa- maybe a glass of wine as well. He still got his back to her. And then she cracks open her bottle of perfume and pours it over his feet. And he still got his back to her. So all of this is going on. Simon's seeing everything. Jesus has his back to her. But there's this gorgeous $64 million moment in the story. And it says this. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. I want you to notice what's going on here. Uh, And this is just setting us up for, for what we need to see. When he turns towards the woman, it means he has to twist his body round to see her. True? So it's an intentional act. This is not, it's not an accidental, oh, oh, there's a woman. This is, this is Jesus turning round, right? He swivels round. As he looks at her, who's he's got, who has he got his back to? Simon. So in one incredible move, he turns to the woman and turns his back to Simon. Because he's just asked Simon a question. Simon, of the two people who owed the money, the big debt or the little debt, who do you think would love the money lender more? And Simon knows he's been hard. Simon is a, is a clever man. He knows that Jesus has just set him up now and he's about to be hard in his own house. And Simon says, I suppose. One commentator said he reacts with supercilious indifference. He goes, it's like, it's like whatever, okay? And it's, it's, that, it's that moment that Jesus reacts. He reacts to the indifference of Simon and to the passion of the woman. Now note this, he turns to the passion of the woman and he turns away from the apathetic indifference of Simon. First century, nothing's changed. What gets God's attention? What gets your and my attention? Uh, what, what, what draws his attention to me and you is and are those moments of passionate surrender to him. What turns God off us, if I can say this really carefully, he loves us, but what sort of turns God away from us in that sense is apathy and indifference. And I I, I don't care. I, I don't give a monkey's. Now, now, he loves you no matter what your attitude is, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but, but here's Jesus turning his face to the woman. Why? Because he has been experiencing her passion, her extravagance. Everything she's been doing has now got his attention. And he's turning away from the, I suppose, mentality, the apathetic attitude of this religious scholar. And in a symbolic and literal moment, he's turning towards something he loves and turning away from something he hates. Now, he's not turning away from the person he hates. He's turning away from the attitude that he hates. The Bible says he resists the arrogant and the proud, holds them at arm's length, but he accepts and exalts the humble. Now, that's what's going on here. He's literally turning his face To the humility of this woman, she's literally down low on the ground, ministering to the feet of Jesus, as low as she could possibly get. Profound humility. And yet Simon's arrogance uh, is haughty and full of himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know. If, If he understood what was going on. And Simon's arrogance turns Jesus away from him while the woman's humility attracts him. That's a profound principle of life. Now, does God love everybody in this room? He does. He loves every single one of us, regardless of our attitude. 
But if we want, can I say this carefully, 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 if we want to get his attention, and what I mean by that is if we want to draw his eye, if we want to see him respond to our world, actually one of the things he responds to is passion fueled by humility. A humility that says, Lord, you are my God, you are my Lord, you're at the center of my world, I love you, and I don't care what people think about me, I don't care what's going on around me, I want everyone to know that you are the Lord and the God of my life, and I will do anything to honor you. Now, I want to tell you, that attitude gets God's attention. doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else, it just means he's paying attention to something I'm doing. Why? Because I'm doing the very thing that excites his heart, that, that stirs his heart. What, what turns God off me, still loves me, still committed to me, but what turns him off me is when I'm self-reliant and arrogant and, and egotistical and, and think that I can do it myself. That's sort, of, that's sort of what's going on here at the heart of this. So what, what, what is happening here? Well, I, I believe that actually it's her intention that got his attention. Intention gets attention. Now, let me just, again, I don't want you hearing what I'm not saying. So listen to me carefully. There's a sense that God is always looking at you. All right? Are you there? Are you with me? There's another sense in which we can draw the eye of God to our world. Yes? That, that when we do things that pleasure him, he notices those things. He is drawn to those things. He sees those things. And when you and I love him with all of our hearts, we want to do the things that pleasure him. Yes, is that, is that fair? Is that, amen? So when I do the things that pleasure him, though there's a sense in which he's looking at me all the time, there's another sense in which that catches his eye specifically. Yes, my, my oldest daughter was preaching last week at the church in Scotland, she's a part of, uh, and uh, I went to hear her preach, and you know, she's, she's always been uh, amazing, she's been an incredible daughter to us, she's been a wonderful, wonderful girl, I've always loved her, I've always been passionate about her, but you know, uh, as she got up to preach, I couldn't take my eyes off her. And I wasn't just looking at her because she was the preacher, I was looking at her because she was mine. There was something in this moment. It was a, a moment of immense pride, a moment uh, uh, you know, of good pride, a moment where I was just thrilled and delighted and honored, not only that God was using her, but that she was doing some of the things that we had prayed about and dreamed about and hoped for and trained her in and put all our energy into so that maybe one day, one day, she would do the sorts of things that would honor and pleasure God. And there she was doing those things. I want to tell you, it got my attention. I wasn't just listening as a punter. I was listening as a father who had invested so much into her that now some of that investment was returning. Did you understand what I mean? Well, I think the Lord's a little bit like that with us. He loves you. He's invested into you. He's poured his life into you. He has literally moved heaven and earth for you. And that remains the same whether we respond to that or not. He won't take that away. Because he loves us. But what thrills him is when we get that. We understand that. We understand what he's invested. We understand what he's put into our lives. We understand that he's moved heaven and earth. And in response to that, 
we then offer all that we are and all that we have and all that is within us back to him. Now, when that happens, a moment or a life of extravagant worship is created, which gets heaven's attention. It's not about what you sound like. It's not about the song you're singing. It's not about even the sort of the, the, the theology of it, although that's important. It's about what, the heart that it's coming out of. This is a moment of unadulterated extravagance because the woman has been captivated by him and now wants to give it back to her. That's what extravagance is about. It's not about style. It's about you and I understanding what he has done for us and what that means. And so that evening, her worship was intentional. If, if we look at that story, it looks a little bit like a random moment. My 15-year-old daughter, it's one of her favorite words, random. God, you're so random. Listen, there's nothing random about me. I keep trying to tell her. I'm not a random sort of a person. Um, But she loves this word random. And of course, like many of our gorgeous young people, they use words maybe differently to how they actually are supposed to be used. Uh, And so she says, Dad, you're so random. Uh, And when we read this story, if we're not careful, it feels a bit random. It feels like Jesus is having dinner and the woman gate crashes the party and sort of does her thing. And it's all a bit awkward and a bit uncomfortable. Actually, Dr. Luke works really hard to show us there's nothing random about this moment of worship. Can I just say, let me say, true worship is never random. True worship. True worship is always intentional. That's what makes it true and worship. It's not something, oh, okay then, we're here now, we might as well do this. No, 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 it's, it's, it's actually, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I need to do. There's an intentionality about worship, which absolutely is amazing. And in fact, Dr. Luke shows us that. Verse 37, is he, says, he says this of the woman, that when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. The word learned there, literally the idea is to come into knowledge of. So in other words, she's not just walking down the street and she hears music and thinks, well, what's going on in there? And she walks in and says, oh, it's Jesus. That's amazing. What a coincidence. No, no, it's not that sort of learning. It's she's tracking him sort of learning. So, you know, she's following him on Google Maps, all right? She's, she's hooked, she's stalking him. That's the idea here. She has learned where he is. It's not accidental. It's not random. This is a deliberate learning. She wants to know where he is. And she deliberately puts herself culturally in harm's way. In order to get to him. This is not an accident. This is not fluke. This is not random. And this is not a gate crasher. This is a well-planned idea. How do we know that? Well, Dr. Luke, as if to ram the point home, look at what he says. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. It's not the sort of thing you walk, you know, around with, is it? Okay, yeah, I'll just... Actually, she came deliberately with that jar because she knew... He was there. You see, when we say about a woman like this, oh, well, this is just a a random act of emotion, we diminish her extravagance. This is not an emotional act. This is an intentional act. 
Now, emotion is clearly involved when she gets to work. No question about that. But the driver is not emotion. The driver is intention. She's going to do this whether she feels like it or not. She's going to do this whether she feels something or not. This is intentional. And at the heart of profound, world-changing worship and lifestyle worship is the mentality, I'm going to do this no matter what because it's the right thing to do. Whether the angels are singing when I do it or not, I'm going to do it. Whether I have goose pimples or not, I'm going to do it. Whether I feel that God is with me or not, I'm going to do it. It's a decision of intention. And although we've been helped this morning by a fantastic band, listen, listen, actually, if you and I turn up with intention, we don't need the band. Now, you know, I'm not saying get rid of the band, I'm saying keep the band, the band's great. But you know what I mean. I I, I could have worshipped, if the power had have gone off today, I could have still worshipped Jesus because it's not about needing a band or it's not about feeling something or it's not about getting in the mood. It's about worshipping Jesus because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He's changed my life. And that's the same whether the power's on or not. Whether I've got goose pimples or not. And that night, no emotion, no band, Hillsong hadn't yet been invented. There's no atmosphere apart from that's kill Jesus atmosphere. That's the only thing. And yet in in a world of zero atmosphere, we have one of the most profound acts of worship in the Gospels. Why? Because she was intentional. She was intentional. I, I love this tension between, uh, you know, intentional and spontaneous. The, 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 bio, uh, the, the, the dictionary describes intentional as to do something on purpose. That feels a wee bit mechanical, doesn't it? And we don't like mechanical so much to do it on purpose, to do it, you know, deliberately. That just feels, you know, a little bit mechanical. And so we prefer the idea of spontaneous. You know, do you know if you're describing someone in an exciting way, you'd say, he's so spontaneous. That sounds exciting. But when you describe someone as, he's so intentional. It's not so exciting, is it? You know, if you're trying to, trying to attract someone on a dating, uh, d- dating website, I'm really intentional. Let's see how many hits you get on that and see how that goes. Now, spontaneous looks amazing, but it's vulnerable. The very fact that it's spontaneous means it's vulnerable. So when a spontaneous moment happens, it looks incredible, all right? But the problem with a spontaneous moment is it doesn't happen very often. So a man rushes out, buys a bunch of flowers for his wife, brings it home and says to her, there's a bunch of flowers. He said, what's the occasion? No occasion, just, just wanted to buy you some flowers. And everybody looking on, the world looks on and goes, oh, that's so beautiful. What we don't understand is it was five years ago since he had his last spontaneous moment with a bunch of flowers. Yes? Spontaneous looks cool when it happens, but you can't build anything on spontaneous. Can't build a marriage on spontaneous. Marriages are built on intention. Now, hopefully a bit of love in there as well, but intention. You can't build a business on spontaneous. Can't build a great local church like Keynes here 
on spontaneous. The kingdom of God's not built on spontaneous. The Bible says that Jesus was slain. He was crucified before the foundations of the world were laid. That doesn't sound spontaneous to me. That sounds intentional. And God is completely committed to us in an intentional way. God loved me this morning intentionally. No emotion involved. He just loved me. And actually what he's looking for from his people, extravagance, we tend to think extravagance is something, you know, just off the top of our head, something we just do, a, a moment, and, and that, but actually extravagance, true extravagance is when I count the cost, I absolutely understand what I'm doing and who I'm doing it for, and even though it's expensive, I do it anyway. Now that's extravagant. That's extravagant. When I know this is going to cost me. And that's the challenge for each one of us. This, this picture coming up on the screen is one of my favorite pictures in the whole world. This is me kissing a random woman. No, this is me um, kissing my wife. Not random. No, no. Uh, this is me kissing my wife. Some of you may recognize the backdrop. That's the Great Wall of China. Who, who's been to the Great Wall? Anyone been? Isn't it amazing? It's like it doesn't disappoint. It is truly true. So that's the, you're going all the way up. We're walking up to the Peking Tower, the Seven Towers. It's the highest part of the Great Wall of China. And Don and I walked all the way up to the top. And uh, we had always wanted in a lifetime ambition to kiss on the Great Wall of China. Don't, don't ask me why. My wife had always wanted to go to China. And so she said, wouldn't it be great to kiss on the Great Wall of China? Now, this picture was taken in 2008. Okay, on our 20th wedding anniversary. Now stay with me. Okay, four years before that, in 2004, remember my wife wants to go to China. She would love to have a kiss on the Great Wall of China. And in 2004, I heard my mouth say, do you know when something comes out of your mouth and you go, that was random? No, no. Um, I heard my mouth say, for our 20th wedding anniversary, we'll go to China and we'll go to the wall, and we'll kiss on the wall, right? That's absolutely true, this. Now, John, that does sound a bit weird, but here's, here's, the big, here's the big intentional moment. The 20th wedding anniversary in UK culture is celebrated by giving someone China. Come on, let that sink in. Come on, come on. Come on, people. This story gets better and better. Now, now, so, so 2004, I'm looking forward to 2008 when we're 20 years married. 20 years married, I'm supposed to give her a piece of China. Well, in, instead of giving her a piece of China, I'll take her to China. Come on, let's go to China. And so began a four-year adventure where I worked and saved and prayed and scrimped. I didn't steal anything, but I came close in order to make the China trip happen. And so we got on the Great Wall. We're walking up the Great Wall. I grabbed a complete stranger. I said, would you take a picture of us right now? And the person said, yeah, no problem. And so I said, no, you have to wait till we kiss. And so as we're kissing, click. And that, that's become a canvas that hangs in our home uh, as a canvas because one of the greatest moments of our lives. Now, if you had been on the Great Wall of China, what it looks like are two silly Westerners <laughs> doing a touristy thing. I mean, today we would have done a wee wouldn't we? We'd have done a selfie. Uh, we wouldn't have asked a stranger. But back then, we hadn't invented selfies back then. So, so if you were on that wall, it looks like two 
people are simply doing a spontaneous thing. But nothing could be further from the truth. That kiss is the most expensive kiss I have ever had in my life. It was worth it, but it was very, very expensive. That looks spontaneous, but it was planned for four years. You're not here because God got spontaneous. You're not here because God thought, oh, what, 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 is, what shall I do today? I know, I'll, I'll save somebody or I'll save the world. Or No, no, you and I are here today because we serve an intentional God. We serve a God who leaves nothing to chance. My granny used to say, the devil is into detail. Uh, and I don't know what that means at all. Honestly, I'm 50 years of age. I still don't know what that means. But here's what I believe. God is in the detail. We serve a detailed God. We serve a God who leaves no detail to random. No detail to chance. The cross is not spontaneous. The cross is intentional. The incarnation is not a spontaneous moment. It's an intentional moment. Uh, that The salvation of the world isn't just an act of a random God. It is an act of an intentional God. And so in response, in this incredible extravagance from God, which is intentional, he's looking for a people who will be intentional in return. They will give deliberately, intentionally, thoughtfully, faith-filled, faith-stretched, as we heard earlier on, that we actually look at this and say, this is expensive, this is difficult, this is a challenge, but God is worth it. Therefore, I will change my life in order to make sure God gets what he wants. Now, that's what gets God's attention. Not, not around the moment, what's in my pocket, but no, no, I've looked at my money, I've looked at my budgets, I've looked at my life, and here's what I'm going to, I'm going to have to let go of some stuff in order to put God at the center. And that is intentional. That's what gets God's attention. Actually, do you know, it's not just, well, if I'm free on Wednesday night, I'll come out to evangelism. No, no, I'll move some stuff. I'll let go of my squash event that night in order to come and be. Now, that's intentional. That's the mentality that gets God's heart. I mean, will he enjoy spontaneous? Of course he will. But here's what I've discovered. The more intentional I am, the more spontaneous I can be. Here's what I believe. Spontaneity is intentionality at play. So when I live an intentional life, it looks like I'm being more spontaneous. It looks like I'm doing stuff. Yeah. But actually, it's not spontaneous. It's the natural outworking of a life of intention. I'm doing things apparently spontaneously because I've made certain core decisions in my life. When we look at this woman, this is not random. This is not even emotional. This is not erratic. This is not wild or weird or off the scale. This, is, this isn't an unhinged woman doing something a bit, a bit out there. This is a well-planned, thought-through moment. She knows she's going to get criticized. She knows she's going to get hammered by Simon. She knows that this could backfire on her. She knows it's going to be expensive and costly. And yet she still turns up. 
she still goes to his feet. She still washes his feet. She still unbinds her hair. She still kisses him. She still opens up her jar of perfume. And she does it because he is at the center of her world. That's what, get, that's what got Jesus' attention. And he responds to an intentionality that says this, you are the most important person in my world. And therefore, I will do whatever it takes to keep you at the center. I will do whatever it takes to honor you. I will make sure that every decision I make honors you in every single way. We may say, well, that's a first century story. Not really has any relevance to me and you today, but actually the spirit of that night is at the very heart of the story of the Bible. Because that woman is there that night because Jesus changed her life. Though Simon describes her as a sinner in the present tense, Jesus describes her as one forgiven in the present tense. It's quite, quite striking. He sees her as a sinner, but Jesus sees her, sees her as a woman transformed. And here's, here's what he says. Listen, Simon, the one who's been forgiven much loves much as her great love has shown. You see, this woman's life has been revolutionized and transformed by Jesus. And in response... She is extravagant to him. Let let me put it another way. She's extravagant to him because he has been extravagant to her. Here's what I've discovered in my Christian life. If I can just be really vulnerable with you. The moments in my life when I get stingy and selfish and and inward looking uh, and, and demanding are the moments that coincide when I forget what he has done for me. When I remember what he has done for me, the response is that it moves me away from my self-centeredness and it moves me towards a desire to honor him and to live for him and to give him whatever he. And actually, ladies and gentlemen, can I say this? When we look at the cross and what Jesus has done for us, Whatever Jesus is asking from us, it's a bargain. Come on, it's a bargain. It's a bargain. I was on my way to hell. I was lost and undone. And Jesus Christ stepped into my life and gave me a hope and a future. I will not go to hell because Jesus Christ has saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. I couldn't have worked for it. He just was super extravagant and generous to me. And he stepped into my life as an eight-year-old boy and he gave me a revelation that has changed my whole life, my past, my present, and my future. When I remember that, what I give to him is not an issue. When I remember that, worshiping is not an issue, even if I don't feel like it. When I remember that, service is not an issue. When I remember that, finance is not an issue. Now, they're all challenging things that I have to think about, but here's what I do. Right, he has done so much for me. Therefore, therefore, whatever I need to do to ensure that I'm honoring him with all that I am and all that I have, I'm going to do. In essence, that's what's happening in this story. 
Once you, once you pull away all the cultural stuff and all the stuff that's a bit hard to understand and you get right down to the bare bones of this. This is a woman who has had her life revolutionized by Jesus and she wants the world to know that Jesus has set her free from being this sinner and he's given her a hope in the future. That's at the heart of our journey. 21 centuries later, it's the same thing. It may not look like a bottle of perfume. It may not look like a sensuous kissing of the feet. But actually, it's the same spirit and the same attitude. We're not called to copy the woman, but we are called to capture and catch the heart of this woman. That he has been so extravagant to me. And in response, I want to be extravagant to him. Extravagance is intentional. Now here's what I want to challenge you with as I close. What do you need to be intentional about? It's so easy to leave our life of worship to spontaneity. But can I say this? If I, if I left the reading of my Bible to spontaneous, I'd read it once a year. If I left worship to spontaneous, it would maybe happen once a month, once a month or once a week. If, if I left parenting to spontaneous, my children would be dead by now. <laughs> buried under the patio somewhere. If, if, I, if I had left my marriage to spontaneous, a world life-changing memory would never have been created. Now, now here's the thing. What do we need to be intentional about? Maybe part of the intentionality is that we, we want to place him at the center of our devotion, open up his word, create a moment every day of prayer and intimate engagement with the presence of God. Well, John, I'm busy. Yeah, join the club. But if we're intentional, we make time. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we've heard the challenge about evangelism and mission that's coming up. Maybe some of you, it terrifies you but there is something that God is asking of you. And you can make the excuses that it's this and this, but actually maybe today God is saying, do you be intentional about this? Step out into this. Make room for me in this and I can use you and use this. Maybe for some of us, we need to be intentional about our money. We tend to give God what's left when he's always demanded what's left. So, so, see, see, this is real. It's easy to look at this story, and it feels a bit like a fairy tale. It feels a bit like Disney. But this was a real woman with a real life, real culture, real criticism, and real cost. And she does all of that because she simply says, Jesus is worth it. Now, what I want to challenge you with today is if Jesus is worth it, what do we need to do today? What do we need to be intentional about in order to show him how much we really love him? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Thank you for listening and we trust that the word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.